0: From Swoop, it's Take the Plunge, a podcast about how business owners decided to stop what they were doing and took the plunge to start their own businesses. We look at how they came to that decision and what those first crucial steps were in getting their businesses up and running. My name is Ciaran and I'll be your host for this episode. Here's what you can expect on today's episode. What,
1: what we're really looking for is people that we think could become stars. You know, not mm-hmm. everyone becomes a star um, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but there's a lot of factors that go into who can become a star, and we're trying to do our best guesswork to say, okay, this person has had X,Y,Z channel growth over time on this platform. You know, we think we could help them on this platform or whatever. And oh, by the way, they're probably at the point where you know eSports orgs might want to have them be a content creator for their team, and that's a
0: paycheck. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Andrew Drake co-founder and CEO of Bad Moon Talent. Bad Moon is the vision of eSports industry veterans Andrew and, and Bryce Paciento. It's management for the best and brightest players in eSports, representing talent from various game titles, including Call of Duty, Overwatch, Fortnite, and many, many more. Andrew, you're really, really welcome. How are you doing today? Uh, doing great, thanks for having me, I appreciate it. Awesome. And um, So Andrew, can I take you back to Before Bad Moon Talent, what were you doing and why did you decide it wasn't for you and you were going to set up your own business?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, the vast majority of my career has been in gaming. Uh, I've worked in gaming since 2010, which basically makes me a a dinosaur in this in this world of (laughs) gaming of ours. But, um, yeah, I kind of came up through the advertising agency world and, um, you know, eventually pivoted over to Activision Blizzard in 2012. And, you know, for a long time, I was working on, you know, the marketing side of Call of Duty at Activision. But eventually Mm -hmm. in like the 2015, 2016 time period, I really started to kind of pivot my career towards esports. And there were a lot of reasons for that. But, you know, I think the biggest is it kind of combined two of my passions, um, which is, you know, gaming, obviously, and then also competitive sports. Um, And then beyond that, it really seemed like, you know, a place within the industry that you could kind of cut your own path. And, um, you know, I think I've been proven right with with that mentality at the time. And to answer your question, um, you know, I was on the teams that launched the Call of Duty World League, uh, which was kind of the first foray of, you know, Activision kind of formalizing esports for Call of Duty. And then shortly after that, I was on the team that launched the Overwatch League at Blizzard. And, um, you know, one of my main responsibilities during those times was managing and negotiating talent contracts um, on behalf of Activision Blizzard. So, you know, I think it gave me a bit of a unique perspective of not only kind of what was out there, but also, you know, how the competition did it and what they were looking for. And, you know, you kind of combine that with, you know, many of the people that I negotiated against at some point, asked me to to leave the company and, you know, manage them as a, as a personal agent, and a personal manager. So eventually that's what
0: I did. Awesome. And I suppose, uh, curious to understand, kind of, as you were uh, launching those leagues at um, Activation and and Blizzard, how quickly in terms of the leagues kicking off, could you see that actually there's huge momentum in esports and that you could kind of see real traction both in terms of people viewing, but also actually wanting to come back on on a regular basis as you would any other sport?
1: Yeah, pretty quickly, you know, going back into the 2015, 2016 time period, you know, Call of Duty existed as an esport, but it was kind of a fragmented system of, you know, more one-off events as opposed to a real ecosystem. And we kind of tried to formalize some of the, you know, behaviors and schedules and stuff like that. And then shortly after that, you know, the Overwatch League kind of was Blizzard's first jump into really starting something from scratch. Um, You know, Overwatch was a pretty brand new game at the time and had a very, you know, minimally developed ecosystem for esports. And it kind of let us do our own thing. And then eventually, you know, Call of Duty kind of followed suit with franchise and city-based leagues um, and teams, you know, a couple of years after that. So, you know, I think the... The short answer is um, the viewership was always there. It was before, you know, we at Activision were really, you know, truly caring about esports. I think the formalization of the league really solidified that. And Mm -hmm. I think Overwatch was kind of taking it a step further.
0: And then I suppose from your transition into Bad Moon Talent, was that a kind of a gradual process of starting to build up a roster of talent yourself and then make the move? Or was it like I'm, I'm. dropping out right now and then going to build it? How how did that come about?
1: Yeah, it was somewhere in the middle. Look, I mean, uh, you know, when when you're on the side of Activision Blizzard, not only can you not obviously sign talent because you you work Hmm. for a company. um, So there's definitely that kind of break period where I think I quit Blizzard at the end of August and early September started working for bad moon and you know founding bad moon i want to say we signed our first couple people within the first i don't know 10 days probably of the company and it kind of grew from there you know we we really kind of started our roster based off the relationships that we had and the games that we knew best Mm -hmm. and it's kind of expanded out from there um for a lot of reasons but you know the biggest is i think self-preservation you can't just rely on a couple games in this industry you need more than that Mm -hmm. but also You know, from a talent perspective, you know, I think our work speaks for itself. And because of that, you know, this is a reputation based business, which means if we do right by one person, that can lead to two or three or four recommendations to their friends Mm -hmm. in the business of, you know, potential people that we could work with, um, whether they're in the same game or a different game.
0: And how kind of taking the analogy between kind of the esports and sports side of things from an agent perspective, when you're addressing talent and looking for opportunities on behalf of talent, is it is it very similar in terms of are you looking at kind of three hundred and sixty style contracts like you would as a, a music label, or are yeah. you looking uh, uh, as a as a football agent to ensure a certain kind of commercial rights for, for, for kind of brand and relationship that way? It, does does it work and operate in a very similar system, or are there nuances within the esports industry?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. There's a short answer and a long answer to that. The short answer is. <laughs> it's basically the same thing as football or basketball or anything else. The longer and better answer is, um, you know, agents and managers have only existed in the space for, I don't know, let's say five years. Um, and you know, this entire industry is kind of happening at warp speed. So as an example, you know, a lot of people in the movie industry or the music industry, or even, you know, traditional sports industries have both an agent and a manager in our world. That's a lot rarer. I mean, it it does happen, and I think it's going to go more and more in that direction over time. But, you know, it's a slow uh, grind, I think, of proving value as representation. And it's going to take a little bit longer for the vast majority of people to want both an agent and a manager. So, in at least the short term, we act as both. Um, You know, on the agent side, it's more traditional negotiating contracts, and there's certifications. Um, We're in California. So, the state of California certifies us as a place that can handle money and do stuff like that. But I strongly prefer the management side, which is, you know, if you were a talent we represented, this could be a call that I was having with, you know, some, some people that we rep of, okay, your career is here today. Where do we want to get it in one year or two years or five years? Um, You know, the management side is really about long-term vision of Mm. where we're going and where we're trying to get you and how we're going to get you there versus just the strict x's
0: and o's negotiation on the agent side mm. and how have you found it because obviously you, you mentioned at the start getting the initial roster are kind of initial relationships that you've built up being an industry veteran understanding it being part of these kind of nascent leagues but obviously as you've grown if you if you go on your website and you look at your roster they've got over 21 sorry, over 25 million kind of viewers or subscribers of course very different channels so you can't have known them all from 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 where you are today. So how have you managed to kind of stay on top of discovering new challenge, bearing in mind there are so many channels out there in which talent can can emerge from, like how, how do you manage that?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I have a team of people that, that work for me that, yeah. that help a lot in those areas. But, you know, the real answer is um, there's so many people who want to do this. And by this, I mean, content creation, streamers, you know, stuff like that, YouTube creators. That the supply of people that are potential options and potential clients for us is kind of endless. Um, now, that being said, we look for specific things and the people that we want to work with. Um, you know, growth over time of channels is a big one. but what what we're really looking for is people that we think could become stars. You know, not mm-hmm. everyone becomes a star, um, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but there's a lot of factors that go into who can become a star and we're trying to do our best guesswork to say, okay, this person has had X, Y, Z channel growth over time on this platform. You know, we think we could help them on this platform or whatever. And Oh, by the way, they're probably at the point where, you know, esports orgs might want to have them be a content creator for their team. And that's a paycheck. Uh, Sponsors are going to want to work with them for whatever reason. Um, You know, those are, Significant paychecks you know stuff like that.
0: So like I suppose to take in a different analogy for business like you, you you kind of take a wagon wheel approach when a, analyzing them and, and, and looking are they have different kind of leadership say, qualities which you get in like corporate business yeah. type of person whereas I suppose from your perspective okay, do they have potential charisma? do they have good engagement but actually are they genuinely good at the games that they play so that they can perform over a longer period of time? So yep. I, I suppose it, it, it's, it's that wagon wheel approach of understanding. So yeah, it's it, a- absolutely fascinating. Kind of going back then to, to the bad moon talent, operational, getting up and running side of things, as you mentioned, you've now got a team of people that are able to kind of skate and, and, and check things out. But I'd imagine that wasn't the case from day one. Who, when you were looking to kind of scale up the agency or bring people in, who were the first kind of initial roles you brought in and why did you need those type of roles at that time?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, when my business partner, Bryce Faceno, and I founded the company, you know, it was just two of us for, I don't know, I want to say the first eight or nine months. You know, when you're starting a two-person company, sure, you have a title and he has a title or whatever, but like the titles are irrelevant. You're just, the job is get the job done, however you want to split it up. Our first hire came on board, uh, I think roughly 10 days before COVID became a worldwide issue, which as you could probably guess, not the best time to to make no. your first hire. That person is named Reed Trimble. He's based out of Toronto. Uh, he is our director of sponsorship and partnerships, and he's fantastic. He just you know came on board with us at literally the worst possible time for <laughs> well for a lot of people. But you know we we had gotten to the point where we knew what we were good at and what we were bad at and what we needed help with, and you know. Booking sponsorships for our, our people and for our streamers was the top priority um, and someone to truly focus on that every single day. And that's why we, we hired in that area. You know, for the first couple months Reed was with us, um, it was a real struggle because the world just kind of stopped, or at least the business world kind of stopped. And yeah. um, because of that, nobody was looking to, I don't know, you know, spend their money in this space, yeah. just like every other space. Um, yeah but i think the you know one of the benefits of being in gaming is i think quickly people realize like okay they're at home really more right. and yeah and you know and even esports like we were really the first sports competition to come back and there were a lot of reasons for it but yeah. the biggest is you know we're a digitally native product so yeah. unlike the premier league that had to you know have yeah. butts and seats and stuff like that and worry about stuff like that um And have competition where you were sweating on each other and you know like it was just different and we were we came back quicker because of that Mm -hmm. so you know i'd I'd say we had kind of one one month that was really rough as a business and then quickly kind of pivoted into our new reality
0: yeah because i I was really fascinated to ask you about that because obviously as as you rightly alluded to people like panicked because marketeers are like effect this i'm not spending any money until we get a a grip on it but as you say Everyone's back in their houses. They can't do anything else but be in the house. So therefore your, your time period to get involved in things like gaming is huge. Worldwide, everyone loves sports on the majority. We're absolutely starved of sports. Like basically the only thing I think going was the Belarusian league. Like I, I know the betting companies are going mad because that was the only league that people could watch <laughs> and play actual physical sports. So I'm fascinated to understand the kind of counterbalance to that from your perspective, was there a huge uptake in new fans, engagement rates? What was it like during that kind of, I suppose it would have been kind of May 2020 to August 2020 period? What, what was that like for esports as an industry?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, I'd go bigger than esports and just think of it as like gaming agnostic. Um, you know, yeah. esports is roughly four ish percent of the total gaming audience. Um, so, Gaming is obviously a lot larger. I think there were a couple easy benefits to point to. You know, the, how do I say this? Um, Traditional TV network execs uh, had no live sports to put on TV for a long time. And I think that kind of opened up their minds to consider things like esports and gaming that they probably wouldn't have put on their airwaves um, if, you know, traditional sports were continuing. So, you know, I think that conversation moved probably roughly two years faster than I think it would have without COVID. And then the other thing is um, you know, as I touched on earlier, with just people being in their house more people had more time to come back to gaming, so you know if you look at the really just any gaming metric at that time, hours played, you know stuff like that was just through the roof um, and it was because people had more time to to reconsider gaming if they had kind of lapsed out of it again, like we had kind of one really rough month as not only a company but just our general space and really the whole world. Yeah. Um, but I think we kind of pivoted into our you know, digital reality and, and new reality quicker than most just based on what we are as a product.
0: And just picking up on the, the point you make around TV, were you guys able to accelerate relationships with TV networks? Because what we saw is some of the, the founders we've chatted to on this podcast have taken advantage of the TV segment. Because as early stage companies, often they'd always ignore it as an advertising channel because it's incredibly expensive. But however, because of the pandemic, people moving to digital channels, whatever, TV stations were kind of panicking a bit, particularly the sports segments, dropping the rates for advertising. So uh, we saw kind of a flood of businesses using it as a channel to, to push out their kind of products or whatever they're advertising, and, and, and benefiting massively from it because it was a, it was a different uh, price point for them. Did you find you uh, were able to kind of engage kind of TV networks a lot better because of the pandemic?
1: Yeah, to a certain degree. You know, I'm not sure there's a really perfect answer to that question. Okay. Um, you know, I think the the world of traditional TV and in our world of you know gaming and the Twitches of the world um, are still pretty fragmented for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the the pandemic has sped up that conversation of the traditional TV types considering gaming and realizing the potential in the space, but. I personally believe traditional TV needs us more than we need them. And, you know, I think that's a pretty hard realization for people that have worked in TV for 50 years or whatever. And it's just been the way of the world, you know, I'm, I'm 36. So I grew up with very traditional TV as a big part of my, my world and my reality, but kids today that are 16, 17, 18, they don't have the same viewership habits (laughs) that I had 20 years ago that, you know, um, I'm based in the States and I say this every once in a while like if you asked a 16 year old what shows do they watch on ABC it's like they don't even know what you're talking about let alone <laughs> like have an answer to the question so it's so true <laughs> I mean you know take that however you want but um, yeah. I think that it's going to be fascinating to see what happens in yeah. the next five years and I think Absolutely. That, um, as traditional TV becomes quite different than it's always been. Um, yeah. you know, I think gaming is gonna be one of the sectors that really benefit from that.
0: So t- tell me this, obviously, uh, yourself and Bryce hire read of the world's possibly worst timing. However, overcome this, uh, actually trends are going in your favor, things are starting to pick up. At what stage then do you start to go, okay, we're, we're onto something, let's grow the, the, the business further. Um, what do you start to do operationally then? Do you look to, take on funding do you take on more staff how do you what point do you start to, to build
1: yeah i mean it was a it was a gradual build you know i think uh, as you said and, and i said earlier like when we hired our first employee it was a really rough time and you know we had to, to deal with that and make sure that we could continue to pay salaries and continue to operate a Functioning business. We brought our fourth employee on in, uh, I want to say September, October, probably October of last year. And his name is Mark. He works under me on the talent management side. And then we've actually just brought on our fifth employee, I don't know, two, three months ago. Um, Her name is Kathy. She works under Reed on the sponsorship side and executing campaigns. You know, the only money we've ever taken from, you know, investors was um, from my parents when we started the business. And you know, we paid that loan back to my parents within, I think, about nine months, and we've never taken another dollar from any outside investors. There's a lot of benefits to that. There's a lot of negatives to that. You know, the obvious benefits are, you know, my business partner and I own virtually the entire company, and, you know, we don't have debts to anyone. Or, you know, the other things, I don't have a boss. You know, I am my own boss, which is obviously yeah. amazing. You know, there's, technically no one I answer to except myself and to my business partner. The downside is, you know, we don't have some golden parachute that's yeah. sitting behind me of if things go badly for three months or yeah. six months or a year, that that's not an option, you know? So look, I mean, there's, again, there's pros and cons to the route we took. I'm not sure there's, I'm not sure there's the right answer to what we should do or what we should have done. And i'm you know definitely not in a position where i you know wouldn't consider taking outside funding in 2022 or beyond Mm -hmm. i mean just yesterday i was talking about reworking on our investor deck which we've used previously and you know we've had a lot of these conversations but you know some have gone close to to working and some you know kind of just go absolutely nowhere and we're in a position where that's okay regardless of what happens and until we find the right outside partner to, you know, that we would actually wanna work with. Um, you know, it's probably not gonna be something that we strongly consider until that day comes.
0: Just getting back, I suppose, to the the talent and the roster that you have, how do you strike the balance between, obviously, managing the current roster that you have and and looking to kind of work with them and developing their communities, their careers, opportunities with, with, with businesses and brands, brands, um, whilst also keeping your eye on the ball on on the new talent and and how how does that balance work for you guys
1: yeah i mean the the biggest recruitment tool we have is just doing right by the people that we manage so i don't know i mm-hmm. think we manage about 41 42 exclusive people at this point and what that means is there's no one else in the market that is representing them working for them etc you know this is the most relationship based business that i've ever worked in and what i mean by yeah. that is if you do right by one person in one game, they're gonna tell at least one of their friends that these people are helping me out and here's how. And there's a, a ripple effect of, of that. I mean, we barely worked in a game called Valorant uh, a year ago. And now I think we manage, uh, I don't know, eight people that work in that game full time. You know, Many of which work in Europe, which at, yeah. you know, a year ago, we didn't even have that many European clients. Yeah. So it's one of those things where I think the, the real answer is we do right by the people that we manage and mm-hmm. we don't take on anyone that we don't feel we're going to do a great job for. And then as far as like outside recruitment, it's kind of a two-way street of friends telling friends and then us also mm-hmm. always being on the lookout for people that we think could become stars with, with our help.
0: And in that, like the fact that you have, um, talent spread across across the globe and the fact that there's 41 of them and the fact that we just went through a pandemic, do you find there's certain tools that you use as a business from an operational perspective that allow you to kind of manage engagement, manage kind of communication with them, keep in touch, keep track? Um, and if so, kind of what, what kind of tools have you been using and why have you found them useful?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the tool that we use the most is Discord. I'm not mm-hmm. sure how familiar you are, but it's basically yep slack for the younger generation you know from our perspective the time zones actually matter a lot less than you would think and there's a lot of reasons for that but people who work in gaming it's not exactly a nine to five job so as an example <laughs> yeah. I, you I think you that's know, very
0: basically a correct response <laughs>
1: yeah i mean it's um i mean a lot of people that i manage they don't really start their work day until you know an audience is ready to view their their content the so yeah. You know, I can tell you my my normal work day and normal kind of using quotes like my busiest time of the day is between like seven thirty a.m. and noon, and then I have a little bit of a lull kind of in the middle of my day, and then yeah. coming out of you know dinner time, it's like the workday starts again. And I think that's partially due to the global nature of, of our of our client roster, but it's also you know even just looking at people in the states like. I'm based in Los Angeles and five o'clock in L.A. is eight o'clock East Coast, which is prime time viewership hours for a lot of U.S. based streamers. Um, So, you know, that's those are their business hours. Um, So I have to kind of flex to that schedule. And I think Discord's a really nice tool to communicate with our people, regardless of what Mm -hmm. time zone they're operating in.
0: Okay. Because, yeah it's really interesting that that's the the tool of choice because as you say yeah it is it is usually something you'd associate never with a business but we're kind of a younger generation yeah i mean discord is uh you know we do calls like like this on
1: discord we do yeah. text or you know text-based that's chats it. whatever you want to call it and we can also set up you know groups quickly so as an example like if we have a an esports org that needs to, to talk directly with our people but We need to also be included on that we can have kind of a three-way conversation and everybody sees what everyone's talking about and you know the younger generation deals with i think things like email a lot less than you know definitely Mm -hmm. when i started my career um yeah i know i'm I'm the oldest guy on our team and uh you know i I deal with email every single day but it's just (laughs) it's just a different world today so we have to flex around what our people do
0: yeah and just kind of curious to, to pick up on any kind of trends you might have seen. So obviously you were, you were talking about different global time zones. And I was just wondering, have you seen any kind of nuances in terms of any geographies that got really into uh, gaming or esports over the last kind of year or so? Because I, I'm always kind of fascinated when I look at things like Spotify data, how much people in Latin America consume music. Over yep. and above any other region around the world, does the same thing apply in in gaming?
1: Yeah, it does. Um, I mean, I think the two biggest growth countries that I think are going to really, really matter more and more every single year are Brazil and India. You know, I think there's a lot of obvious things to look at, but it's basically the convergence of lots and lots of people, everyone having a cell phone, regardless of what country you are in, and things like five G internet kind of expanding. And if you roughly look at those couple things, you can kind of predict where things are gonna matter a lot. You know, those two countries are massive in the mobile esports space, which is Mm -hmm. a space that we're kind of just starting to operate here in the States and in Europe. But, you know, I think, think of it like this. Everyone's got a cell phone, right? Not everyone has a a PC or a console because they cost a lot of money. And also it's not necessarily a necessity as much as a phone is. So, you know, those countries care more and more about things like mobile esports because Mm -hmm. that's what all their friends have. Um, Everyone's got a phone in those countries and that's what they gravitate towards.
0: So, so picking up on, on that trend then, have you noticed a difference in, say, the popularity or the types of the kind of games that are coming on the scene in terms of what people are engaging en masse with? Um, are they more simplified style games because they have to be driven by mobile? Does, does that correlate or, or what's your observations? Not as
1: much anymore as it would have been, you know, four or five years ago. Phones are so good at this point, and the developers who make games specifically for mobile are also so good at what they do that the games look pretty much virtually identical on your phone as it would on a PC or a console, and I think that's just another thing that really has positively impacted mobile Mm. esports scenes. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy how good games look on mobile these days, and also how how similar they can be to, you know, the console or PC-based version of some of these titles as well.
0: And and what are, are kind of a couple of the games that you are kind of keeping tabs on in that they're kind of growing kind of mini communities and, and esports players out of at the moment that kind of are kind of just kind of coming on the scene?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure it, it's just coming on the scene necessarily, but Call of Duty and, you know, Warzone within Call of Duty have always been kind of our bread and butter. Mm-hmm. I don't see any world where those go down in popularity anytime soon. Uh, Valorant, as I touched on earlier, is a game made by Riot that didn't exist, you know, 18 months ago or whatever it was, and I think is only going to grow in popularity over time. You know, things like Roblox are, it's a fascinating experience, and I think it kind of, there's a phrase here of skating towards where the puck is going, and that's kind of what Roblox is, in my opinion. I think, you know, as Facebook becomes meta and, they're doing that because they're building a world and a digital experience. Um, you know, Roblox, I think, is going to pivot nicely into that new future. And also, it works well with, you know, brands and the ability to build branded worlds within their game. It's kind of a game that's just going to make a lot of sense over time. And I think you're going to see a massive, massive growth in, in that game, um, in that experience uh, over the next couple of years.
0: And, and how do you feel like that will, the, the backdrop for kind of, I suppose, the the mass market simplistic games, if you think of like King's Candy Crush or Zynga's uh, Farm Bill, do, do you feel that they may fall more into the background or there's still going to be a huge appetite for those type of games alongside the, the, the kind of more kind of gaming esports community?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, so I was at Activision Blizzard when they acquired King. And you know, I remember at the time it was, I think, nearly a $6 billion acquisition. and there was a lot of reasons for it but the biggest is candy crush is a game which is you know king's bread and butter has a massive player base and that player base is spending massive amounts of money not only at the time but mm-hmm. all, you know still through today which i think is i don't know five six years later and the real answer is there's a massive audience for games like candy crush and Farmville that's a much more casual experience but it's still gaming it's just yeah. another sector of gaming and i think it also Kind of speaks to you know those type of games generally have a a higher percentage of female-based audience and i think the female audience in gaming is still a massively underserved you know community and group and i mm-hmm. think more and more developers are going to produce more and more games that specifically target a more casual audience and i don't see that changing anytime soon
0: and then i suppose for you guys as you as you've mentioned you, you you've started I've kind of gradually built the team up, and you're managing your your roster now of 41. What are the kind of couple of things that you're looking to do a bit differently as a business over the next 12 months to kind of improve your offering and improve how you run the business? Kind of what are the areas you're you're, you're focused on?
1: We're always looking to scale. You know, I think there's a lot of ways to scale, but the easiest for us as an agency is to expand our roster. You know, it's hard to have a crystal ball here, but I would guess that we probably are uh, managing, I don't know, 60 to 70 clients a year from now, you know, to do that, we're going to have to bring on more staff. And, um, you know, we will, you know, I think it's, it's one of those things where if we scale the way we currently scaled, it's kind of a brick by brick approach. If we scale the outside investment, um, that's obviously a different conversation and kind of can speed up that growth, but also, you know, comes with different risks as well. So Hard to predict which way we end up going but in the short term we're going to continue doing what we're doing because it's working to this point and um you know Mm -hmm. we're running a profitable business and that's the goal
0: awesome yeah what was the goal make more money than you (laughs) spent thanks a mil andrew uh i've absolutely loved this like as as i was saying to you before we started chatting i'm just fascinated by the space and thanks for sharing so much of your knowledge and also giving us an insight into badminton talents and how you've got it from uh a, a brand new business to where it is today and um, so thanks so much for sharing everything with you uh with us brother and um uh, i wish you all the best for Towns, and i hope to see that you've got 70 plus in in 12 months time whether that's uh organically growing it or, or taking an in external investment but uh thanks so much again for for coming on and telling us about the Bad Moon journey i
1: appreciate that uh and you and me both on the 70 people so uh um,
0: yeah. <laughs> Well, it seems like you're doing a pretty good job so far, so more of that.
1: I appreciate it. This is fun.